All right, I am sitting here on a Jerusalem street corner, but not just any random corner. I happen to be on that wonderful street that many of you listening may have been to just in front of Misrat Benim, a house of suffering for many of us who have made Aliyah. And right now, the site of a particularly painful story. I'm here with David Ben Moshe, who's sitting in a Shvitat Rav. It's a, a hunger fast. And rather than put his story into my words, I'm going to ask you, David, please tell me why we're sitting here right now. Uh, thank you, Mike. So, it's been a very long story before we got, we time. got here. Yeah. But uh, just to first let you guys know a little bit about me. So, I grew up in the countryside of Maryland to Christian parents, and I'm African-American, which you probably can't see over this audio. We're working on that. Yeah. <laughs> and as I grew up, I didn't really connect with it. I fell away from it, kind of disconnected from my family. Went to college, had a terrible experience. Where did you go to school? George Washington. Uh Uh-huh. And quickly dropped out and got myself in some trouble. And that trouble ended me up in federal prison. And in prison, I had this really life-changing experience. What happened was one day I was in the library and the compound was locked down. So I'm sure you guys all know what lockdown means now. You can't move. You're stuck where you are. That's you're bored. a strange section experience that most people up until now probably had no connection to. Yeah, I used to have to explain what it is, but now people just get it. So I'm like restless. I'm walking around. And I see this guy who's in the corner and he's reading something. And he seems to be the only one who's not really bothered by the fact that we're in this library for hours and able to move. So I walk by him, look over his shoulder. He's reading something in the language I don't understand. And I was like, keep on walking by. Some more time passes, and then I do it again, but this time I stop and I ask him, I say, hey, like, like, what's that? Like, what are you reading? And so he tells me, oh, well, you know, I'm reading, like, the Torah, the five books of Moses, and it's the Bible, and it's in Hebrew. And then... So wait, I, wait pause. I want that image. So you're in lockdown, Everybody is feeling like they're wasting their time. They're frustrated. They don't know what to do. And you see one person who seems to be elsewhere. It's just kind of elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. Kind of somewhere else. And then looking at the page, I noticed something. And I asked a question. And asking the question, I think, is really the moment where my life changed. And what I asked was, I saw all these little boxes at the bottom. And so I asked him, like, what's with the little boxes? And he explained to me the idea of Parshanut, that the traditional way that Jews study their religious text is with explanations from different rabbis. No, this rabbi said this. This rabbi said this. This rabbi is this guy's grandson. He disagrees with him and says this. This rabbi calls out this other guy because he's 200 years later and says this. And this idea that in a religious book, you would want to have all these conflicting interpretations and opinions about what the text says really blew my mind. Because the way I've always thought of religion up until that point is there is one way of interpreting everything. It's not up for discussion or debate. Like, take the party line, and that's what you have to do. Hmm. And that kind of set off this journey where I started learning more and studying more about Judaism until I eventually decided that, you know, this is, for me, I want to be an Orthodox Jew. So that was still while you were in prison or after you got out? So I decided I wanted to while I was in, but Mm -hmm. I didn't do my Orthodox conversion until I came out. And actually, it's a great story. So when I came out of prison, I was sent to the halfway house. Now, the halfway house is kind of fun. 
we have this phrase about the halfway house on the inside. You're halfway in, not halfway out. Ooh, that sounds kind of grim. I mean, you have to have a sense of humor. You're not going to survive without it. <laughs> Fair. I see you smiling right now. People don't realize, but you're on day six right now. You haven't eaten. So it is, yeah, I am like 10 minutes past six full days of not eating with the exception of my halakhic obligation on Shabbat. I just uh, want to say that the smile you're sporting right now does not look that way. I'm sorry I interrupted <laughs> your story. So, so the halfway house, halfway in, not halfway out. Yeah. So you're allowed to transport yourself there. They give you a bus pass, and then you get there, and the first thing they do is they lock you down for seven days because you're a flight risk. Like, if I was going to run away, maybe on the bus, unescorted, would have been the time I did it, not when I arrived. Yeah, that seems a little <laughs> bit strange. Once you've actually checked in. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Let's not look for logic in governmental institutions. Yeah. I think that's part of our story right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So you're there. Yeah. So lockdown, seven days, can't leave. My first day I can leave is a Saturday, and I go to Shul. Went to a one that you knew of, or you just found one at I random? I looked or? up one on Founded and went there. Great. And it was Orthodox Shul, modern Orthodox, accepting, wonderful. They were nothing but nice to me from the first day I showed up. That's a relief up. to hear, because that's not always the story that floats around both in reality and in true in in tale. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. No, I mean like the guy who opened the door, Fred. I still talk to him this day. Nothing but welcoming. I have nothing but good things to say about the community. And I still, every time I go to America, I stay for Shabbat. Wow, that's a real connection. Yeah. So you took your first steps immediately, basically, on getting half that freedom. Yeah. And where did it take you to? So. In addition to doing the Orthodox conversion, I also had to you know, get my life together in a normal kind of way, which is also a lot of work. So it took me a little bit longer than normal. So what they say is the minimum is about a year. It's just not getting done less than a year. It ended up taking me about three or four years just because of getting my life together in other ways, which I also did very successfully. I managed to talk my way into a job at the gym. Uh, I had this problem of I had no real work experience, no college degree, and a criminal record, and finding like work you can actually support yourself on in that situation is not the easiest thing. It's a grim story. I've heard it in a number of places. It's like society immediately stacks itself against yeah. you because of decisions you, maybe not even decisions fully that you made when you were pretty young, but yeah. you, you pushed through. Yeah. Um, so basically, I just applied for jobs eight hours a day, every single day, went to interviews. As soon as you mentioned the criminal record, they like, you know, look down and the interview, send you off, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. And then I was lucky enough to find a gym that had a long interview process. Kind of, they did a group interview and then an interview with a manager and then another interview with a manager. And they were a little bit disorganized, which was great. <laughs> Because they hired me, and no one ever asked about my criminal record. Oh, well, that's fair enough. Yeah. Now, later, when I found that happened, so I became the number one employee in about six months. was pr promoted in nine months. And after it. my promotion, my manager talked to me, and they were talking about it. And then, like, it came up, and it turned out that everyone during the interview process thought someone else had asked about the criminal record and okayed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Sometimes these things just come from above. Yeah. And then I was there for a while, ended up leaving to open my own personal training studio in Baltimore. 
Uh-huh. I went back to college at Towson University. Mm-hmm. Ended up graduating with a 4.0 GPA in exercise science. Yeah. And then I also started working very closely with the Baltimore Police Department. Most doing what? Uh, doing fitness consulting for their physical fitness testing and training just, protocols. Just out of curiosity, how was that? Because I think most people who've had that serious a contact with the law aren't too quick to build relationships with yeah. them again. Certainly not on a positive front. So... How that happened? Here's the way that happened. I'm working at the gym. I trained this girl for a while, and we became good friends. Mm-hmm. And then one day she says, hey, my friend's joined the gym, and he's got some, oh, some more background. So I kind of fell into a specialty of injury prevention, injury rehabilitation. Like That was like my specialty at the gym. That's an important skill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of what I found out with people coming into the gym is that so many people couldn't do the exercises that were the most effective because they were in pain. And if you can get them out of pain, getting them in shape is so much easier. <laughs> it's a metaphor for life somewhere in there. Definitely. Yeah. Think about that. So that was like my shtick was like whenever anyone had any type of pain or injury, like I was the guy they went to. I worked closely with a lot of physical therapists. So my friend tells me I've got my friends coming in. He's got terrible chronic back pain. Like he really needs help. He comes in. I do the interview with him and find out they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a member of the SWAT team. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder he's in pain. (laughs) Yeah. But like he seemed like a nice guy. I started training him we, with the help of a physical therapist. That's another great Israel connection because the physical therapist I sent him to, who I'm still pretty close to, is actually the physical therapist for Team Israel Baseball. Wow. Who happens to be based in Baltimore, Maryland because, you no, know, sometimes it's that's a how, global society. Yeah. <laughs> that's why. Yeah. And so we get him completely pain-free. He hits his main. So his major goal was he wanted to be able to, you know, play with his kids without being afraid of throwing at his back and he got to that goal and way past it and was like and people in the um police office were just shocked at like his complete turnaround and how fit he was and the weight he lost especially at the age he was and so they asked me to come in to do some training protocols and fitness consulting i hear a theme here which i wonder if you sense it in your own life is that is that you have a significant will to help and it seems that even when circumstances start to conspire against you, that the I, I would call it commitment, but it sounds like it's actually not so conscious. It's just a genuine expression of of who you are that it carries you through. Yeah, I would, yeah, I definitely develop. So then, that how are we here? How are we sitting here <laughs> on this wonderful street corner of the of Jerusalem, banging against the doors of bureaucracy to essentially get you something which is your right? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems with someone who's done shuva is that everyone has made mistakes themselves. And it's very easy to find ways to blame external circumstances for the mistakes you made. Sure. And also, when there's nothing written down and you can't see that, it's also easy to assume that other people haven't made so many mistakes in their life. And Interesting. I think when someone sees like this written statement that will follow me around for the rest of my life, all they can think is, well, something bad happened once. 
I don't really care about the good potential he has. I'm much more worried about the bad that could happen and it just couldn't possibly be worth the risk. So I know you experienced this as a Chuva story because it's consistent with the way I know you, which is a focus on self-improvement and not wasting your time kind of like dishing things off on the world <laughs> around you. Nonetheless, a lot of people listening aren't aware of the struggle that you've gone through. Maybe you could sort of walk away. How did you come about coming to Israel in the first place? Okay. So going back to working with the SWAT team in Baltimore and my specialty, eventually a lot of the physical therapists I worked with and my employee and other co-workers and my clients were like, you have a gift for this. You need to become a physical therapist, which is actually why I went back to university to get my undergraduate degree. And so I did that, ended up getting into two of the top 10 physical therapy programs in the U.S. despite having a criminal record. And then the one that I chose to go to, after sending me the acceptance letter, going down and interviewing with them, and, you know, turning over my life on the assumption I was going, at the last minute, denied me the right to register for classes based on my criminal record. Ooh. And so I was, like, in this place where I had, you know, closed down my business, ended my lease, packed up my stuff, and was ready to move, and suddenly had nowhere to go. It was that last minute? Yeah. Ah. That's quite a slap in the face. Yeah. So then I had the opportunity to tell myself, like, you know, if I could move anywhere in the world, where would I go? And the answer was Israel. Wow. So I went to my rabbi and said, I'm moving to Israel. He said, that's great. First, let's do a pilot trip because I did a birthright trip. Uh -huh. And I love birthright. But I wouldn't say it's completely representative of the entire country. It's like this moving, intense experience, which is easy to love. But there's a whole category of jokes about like what it is to be a visitor, what it is to make Aliyah. I'll tell you after we're done. <laughs> yeah. They're all very bad, and I don't want to spread them around. So then I scheduled a two-month trip to come and study at Pardes. That's where we met. Yep. And then Full to the country. Yeah. And then came to study at Pardes. Loved it. And they said that they could get me a scholarship, and then I also applied for and won a social justice fellowship to help me pay for the year program. And then also, I met this girl. And we kind of started, like, dating. It was kind of going well. She liked the idea of me going back to America. So I stayed for a year. And spoiler alert, we're now married and have two children. <laughs> yeah. So did my year at Pardes, and then... As the year started to end, I applied for Aliyah. And that's where the mess with the government really started. And what happened was, the first, I couldn't use Nefesh Benefesh because they don't help people with criminal records, which is, you know, pretty standard for most every organization on the planet. You just, unless it's like specifically for helping people with a criminal record, no one else gives any help to people with criminal records, which is, in my opinion, one of the more embarrassing things about our modern societies where the people who really need the most help get the least help and then we're shocked when we see like 70 80 percent recidivism rates as if they had any other options than returning to crime so i do the application i get it in they say oh we'll get back to you Sometime soon. Don't worry about it. My visa expires for studying. 
I need a visa to be in the country legally. I go and tell them, like, hey, I need to, like, renew my visa. They say, don't worry about it. You have a pending ALI application, and that means you can be in the country legally. I say, great. Can you put that in writing? They say, sure, no problem. Print out this nice document. Put a nice stamp on it. Give it to me. I think I'm good. Then I go to Hungary for a workshop. Uh, for breathing techniques and relaxation exercises. I come back and am immediately detained by border control for four and a half hours and interrogated where they made it abundantly clear that there is no law that you can be in the country legally without a visa if you have an ALI application. I was in the country illegally before. If I'm ever here legal again, I will promptly be deported. So it's not the most enjoyable experience but I managed no getting way. through and they gave me a three month visa to stay in the country which got me through my wedding me and my wife got married in Beersheba it was an amazing time you got a Beersheba crowd here everybody cheer So then the visa starts coming up. I go in, like, you still haven't answered yet. They say, oh, you need an interview. I finally get the interview scheduled. I come in for the interview, and the interview was significantly worse than the interrogation at Border Control. That's saying a lot. I mean, it started off with, how could you be a convert? You don't look like a convert. Oh, that's where they ran yeah. first, huh? And then kind of went down to, oh, so you're Orthodox and have a smartphone. How could that be? Oh, of course, that's yeah. an impossibility. Yeah. And then, of course, the highlight, like, oh, I see you have a criminal record. Uh, how could your parents? How could your wife's parents be happy with you? Did they even come to your wedding? Well, that proves that one of them was a Jewish mother. <laughs> so wait, this was how long ago at this point? So this was in September 2000. And 18. So wait, this has been ongoing for three and a half years? Yes. My, I officially submitted my ALA application on May 9th, 2018. And it's just been a bureaucratic machine chewing up, spitting out. And yet you're here. You have two children, thank God. Yeah. You got a business going. Yeah. Just persevering. Yeah. And, and why are we sitting here now, though? Because, I mean, three and a half years is a long time. A lot of people might say, well, apparently it worked. You're here, you have a family business, thank God, yeah. should grow. How do we end up here? So to make the next three and a half the next two and a half years really short, what happens is I'm initially denied because my conversion is unacceptable, which is something that didn't make a lot of sense. Wait, you said you got married? Yeah, through the revenue. By the revenue. Yes. So you're telling me that, that the revenue accepted your conversion to marry you, which Lord knows is the gold standard of stubbornness. Yep. And yet the Ministry of the Interior tried to claim that your conversion was no good. Correct. Government agencies don't speak to each other? Um, interestingly enough, the government is not supposed to speak to the rabbinute about this specific issue ever. They're supposed to speak to the Jewish agency. Oh, there's got to be a whole story there. I won't even ask you, but okay. So you basically got caught literally between a bureaucratic rock and a hard place. Yeah. And we, somebody here, do you have a sense that there's an individual or some aspect of the institution that simply is gritting its teeth on this? I mean, going back to what I said earlier, I think that when they read my file, they ignore all of the things, the positive I could do in the world and all the potential I have and just see a liability and no one wants to be the person to put their signature on that liability and be potentially held responsible 
in the future. Uh, I mean, it's just basically everybody kicking the can down yeah. the line. And I think one of the things that makes that so much easier for them is that I'm never interacting with any decision maker. It's always I'm in like the sneef dealing with a clerk who takes some notes, takes some paperwork, and sends the file off to some mystery place where it gets processed by the real... i ask you a question. Have you ever read The Trial by Kafka? <laughs> so a lot of people, I've read like half of it, and I keep getting that recommended to me. Yeah, and it gets so depressing at a certain point, you close, you're like, I don't really need uh, my life story in yeah. a uh, in a nutshell here. I mean, the, wow. The most ridiculous... So there have been a lot of ridiculous things, but probably the most ridiculous was after my denial... I was told to try to get a visa based on being married. They couldn't accept that because the government wouldn't accept an Israeli marriage. So a year later, we went flying abroad to get a civil marriage, which is the only one they'll accept. And then when we came back with that, I couldn't use that because my wife was already married to me, so I couldn't marry her. Wait, stop. So basically, you were in conflict with yourself over who got to marry your wife, and that was the government's excuse oh, yeah. for not allowing you to get a visa as a married man because yes. your wife was already married to you. Yes. Okay, I got that straight? <laughs> yeah, that, that's correct. Okay. I, it, it seems to me that the depths of this will, will yeah. never be reached, and that's why you're here yeah. refusing to eat and, yeah. and leave this spot yeah. until the government gives you your right, which and, I really do want to stress yeah. to people who may be unaware that it is not a favor or a... Um, a tova, as we say, that you're looking for. It's actually your right as a Jew. The foundational right, in fact, on which the state of Israel was declared is your right to be a citizen here. And as long as I'm heaping it on, you've already added an incredible amount of energy, life, professional care, and, and neshama, if I dare say. Yeah, no, thank you to, for that. To the country for three and a half years. So how can we help you? How can anybody listening help you break this fast, so to speak, in, in the way in which you want it broken, which is to get the government to respond to your request? Yeah. So currently there is a few ways that you can support me. One, spiritually, you can pray for me, David Batsara. Ben, sir. Ben, sir. Yeah, sorry. I haven't eaten a little, a little bit it's of right. time. It's yeah. been <laughs> almost a week since you've eaten anything. I'm a little peckish right now. Yeah. I had lunch. We have a GoFundMe up if you want to support me financially. I'll put the link in the notes. Yep. If you want to support me physically, you can show up to Misra Apanim. I'm here 24-7 with the exception of I am walking to the hotel three times a day to Davin. And you can support me digitally by just sharing the story, sharing this podcast, sharing one of my posts. And those are the best things you can do. And I just want to add to, first of all, I would say thank you, but it feels like it's not the right thing to say. I want to say bless you. That okay. that um, the perseverance that to me runs like a thread through your story, and I'm confident that if we unfolded it more, it would only be thicker. That that perseverance should pay off not just in the s simple but profound desire to be at home where you live, um, but that um, it should just give you the strength to inspire the people around you uh, on a whole different scale. And I want to ask folks who are listening right now, be in touch with me if that was information that kind of went in one year and out the other, how to be helpful, David. You can reach me at robmikefoyer at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook. You can go to the website, jewishstory.co. Send me a message. Ask how you can get involved. And I'm 
happy to put you in touch. Although my profoundest hope, David, is that by the time people hear this, it will actually just be another story in what is an amazing life. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing no, thank a little you bit with me. us. Thank you for coming and down. Chazak v'amatz.